0: All right. Well, hey, good morning, Brookside, again. Hope you're doing well. It's great to see all of you this morning. And I hope you had a fantastic Christmas. I know Rob said that, but I hope it was enjoyable and relaxing and you got a lot of rest and it was everything you hoped it would be. And uh, again, too, if you're a guest with us or maybe you're in town visiting some family for the holidays, we're so glad you're here and that you're even still in Omaha and joined us this morning. Um, we, uh, We hope you have a wonderful time. My name is Brad Zook, and I'm the director of high school ministry here at Brookside. And today, this morning, we are going to really still be talking about Christmas. We're still going to be in Christmas. And so the thrill of hope decor that you see up here on your bulletin um, was not just an accident or not that somebody, you know, wasn't here to take it down this week. I still thought, man, it'd be great. Even though it's half a week behind us, we're, um, we're still going to be in the Christmas story a bit, as well as talk about where we tend to sort of find ourselves as we approach a new year. Now, let me just start with this, just jumping right in. I want to ask you this question this morning. What was the primary thing, the primary thing that had your attention this Christmas season? For good or for bad, what had your attention the most? And I don't even mean just this last week or just on Wednesday. I'm talking like two or three weeks before this, leading up to Christmas. What was regularly on your mind? And what took up most of your time and energy. What was that for you? I mean, take a second, think about that. All the stuff that was going on. Now there are a ton of things that had my attention this Christmas. A ton of things that I love about Christmas, and you can probably relate. Um, for me, it's not even really about getting the gifts anymore. I mean, I still love getting gifts, but I'm a little bit older now, and so getting gifts, I, I more look forward to this. And maybe you adults in the room can relate. Now your kids still like love getting gifts, right? That's kind of what they're, I mean, that's what they're all about. For us adults, getting gifts is nice, but we tend to, if we really need something, we just go out and buy it. Here's what we look forward to getting around Christmas time, right? A break, like a break, a little break from work, a little time off of work. Maybe you had enough vacation time left that you took the whole week off this last week, but you kind of look forward to getting a break, just a little bit of downtime and still another holiday this Wednesday. Um, But that one sort of rises to the top for me. But in general, One of the main reasons I love Christmas so much and one of the the main things that kind of grabs my attention is this, it's it's predictable. It's very, very predictable. I know that right after Halloween, November 1st, I'm going to start seeing Christmas stuff go up in every store, in every major store, Christmas decorations, all kinds of Christmas decor is going up in the stores. I know I'm going to see red Starbucks cups in people's hands around, but certainly I see a lot of those here uh, amongst the church staff I love seeing those red cups. I, I'm a big coffee fan, I love Starbucks, but man, that red cup, that's like Christmas in a cup. If you could put Christmas in a cup, if there was a taste and a smell to Christmas, it would be Starbucks bold roast coffee. Black and thick and wonderful, and that, that's Christmas in a cup. Um, we start to see Christmas commercials on TV, and this year it was crazy. I think I maybe even saw one before Halloween. I remember looking at Leslie and going, "Was that a Christmas commercial?" And it was Macy's. Macy's kind of took the cake this year for the earliest commercial. And Macy's always gets me too in Omaha because we don't have a Macy's, so I don't know. They always have tons of commercials, but we don't have a Macy's. Maybe they want, maybe they want online shopping. I don't know. But commercials everywhere. And soon lights are going up outside, you know, in people's houses. And the tree comes out, and certainly Black Friday ushers off the spending mania that brings us to December 25th. And it's all very, very predictable and very, very familiar. But here's what also happens at Christmas time busyness, right? Busyness. There is so much going on and so much to get done, right? I mean, it's wonderful. But it's wonderfully hectic. And I love, so I I love the tradition of gift giving. And we've done that. I mean, that's kind of, again, we're all about giving gifts. I love that. It's so nice. But here's the thing. There are so many people to shop for. And maybe for you recently, that that number of people has increased because maybe you got married this last year. Because there's your family to shop for. But then if you're married, there's your spouse's whole family. And you have your family and your siblings. But if they have kids, you have their kids, nieces and nephews. But then you, your spouse's whole family. And maybe some of you are uh, are grandparents this morning, and your grandkids are fairly young, and you have two more grandkids this year than you had last year, and so now you have seven grandkids to buy presents for, and you only had two kids, but now seven grandkids. You never thought it'd come to that. And the in-laws. I mean, just as adults, we're even like, what what do I get the in-laws? And honey, they're your parents. I mean, why don't you buy a gift for the in-laws? Why do I always have to come up with this? And your boss at work, do you get him a gift? Or your coworkers? Or how far does that go? Just your closest coworkers or all of them? And do you get the mailman something for Christmas? And on and on, the shopping. But it's not just the shopping. And even here's a you know, for us men, we don't even do much of the shopping, do we? We have one person to shop for. And if we're married, it's our wife. Because our wives seem to pretty much take care of it. And that's kind of maybe a little secret. But so for us men, we're kind of like, eh, the shopping, it's all right. But she kind of takes care of that. Here's what else, though, makes things kind of crazy, the plans. There's just lots of plans, and it's not so much getting together with the family on Christmas or Christmas Eve. That's great. I mean, that is fabulous, and you have both sides of the family. The hard part is coming up with those plans, right? The frustrating part is not at Christmas. It's four weeks before Christmas. Typically, this happens around Thanksgiving when you're trying to decide when and where we're going for Christmas and there's big debate on that and you're discussing that and no, we can't do that weekend because she's at his, his parents' house that weekend or he's traveling for work that weekend and Uncle Frank better come this year. Every family has like a brother-in-law who's, you never see him and you're like, he better come. He never comes. Does he hate us? Why is Uncle Frank never at the Christmas gathering? But you want everybody there together the plans, and beyond that, there's parties to go to, and there's presents to wrap, and there's pageants and concerts to attend, and on and on it goes, and they're all good things. But looking back for most of us, and we know this, Christmas becomes synonymous with plans and presents and parties. And with all those things, and perhaps most of all, there's this glorious sense of expectation, right? Right? But for most of us, if we're honest, all of our expectations typically have very, very little to do with Jesus. And so, again, the question is this, what was the primary thing that had your attention this Christmas? I know for me it was very busy, and you'd probably answer the same way. Because almost by default, with all of the other craziness of the season, we find ourselves in a place where Jesus isn't really the one receiving our attention at all. He maybe gets some credit, he gets a little recognition here and there, a nice prayer maybe before the Christmas dinner or you go to Christmas services, but our lives show that he isn't really our main motivation when it comes to Christmas, which is also, right, probably what leads to the the after Christmas letdown. Now, I I really don't mean to be Debbie Downer here this morning, and I will move past this, but Can anyone relate to this? Maybe you, like many people, really dread Christmas afternoon. Because Christmas afternoon, or you certainly feel this on the 26th, but even for some of us, by Christmas afternoon, we start to go, man, there's there's only six hours of Christmas left. And the presents have been opened, and the big meal has been eaten, and there's this lull in the day. And wah, 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 so many weeks lead up to this one day, and you suddenly realize... It's already gone for a whole nother year, and it's over. Because maybe the the sense of expectation that we love so much about Christmas is primarily an expectation of plans and presents and stuff. And then the day is suddenly over, and you're surrounded by all of this stuff that you got, and yet we have this sense that the day didn't really deliver what we thought it would and what we hoped it would. And then the real seasonal slump sets in because everyone pretty much hates January, right? I mean, unless your birthday's in January maybe, you just don't like it. And the cold and the snow, it was sort of charming before Christmas, right? You you kind of wanted it to feel like winter and to feel like Christmas, but now, this morning, ugh, the cold just makes you miserable and grumpy. So let's back up a second, because I think, I think if we really took the time to ask why we feel this way, we'd find that it isn't because the celebration of Jesus' arrival was a disappointment, but rather it's because, as I already said, of what replaced and what trumped the arrival of Jesus that let us down. And for most of us, or I'd even venture to say all of us to a degree, the problem is our desire and our appetite for more more. This week, I want us to look primarily at just two verses, just two verses right in the middle of the Christmas story, and they're absolutely wonderful. Um, But before we go there, I want to look at one other passage of Scripture that isn't usually associated with Christmas. And that passage is found in the book of Exodus long, long, long before Jesus came on the scene as a man. And even though Israel didn't know when Jesus was coming, back in the Old Testament, God did. And a lot of the lessons that Israel learned at the birth of their nationhood, Jesus later re-emphasized and refined. So if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to grab it. If you don't, this will be on the screens. But grab your Bible and turn to Exodus chapter 16. Chapter 16. And here we find the, the Israelites, God's people, in the desert, kind of beginning their wandering in the desert. This is even before the Ten Commandments have been given, but this is pretty soon after they're pulled out of slavery in Egypt. Now get this, there's kind of the whole history that the Israelites have, understanding their forefathers and hearing the stories about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Jacob's twelve sons. But we kind of skip over the fact that they had been in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. 400 years. Think about that time frame for a second. That's almost twice as long as America has even been a nation. And so generation after generation after generation of slavery. And maybe some of those stories about their forefathers of Abraham and Isaac and the promise that God gave to them, maybe they started to to kind of fade away. But suddenly, no, Moses comes along, God delivers his people through Moses, and they miraculously are pulled out of Egypt out of slavery. And it's wonderful, and yet, so quickly, chapter 16 in Exodus, the Israelites, they just get really, really hungry, and then they get really, really angry. They want more, and they start to wonder why they were in such a rush to leave Egypt. Let's look at this for a second, just starting at verse 2. I'm just going to read a few verses. In the desert, it says, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt, There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. You can almost see them shaking their fists at Moses and Aaron. Then the Lord said to Moses, so the Lord responds, he says, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. All right, so so God didn't mind giving his people something to eat. That wasn't a problem. He didn't want them to starve. But there was something that God was very concerned about, and it was this. He thought, will my people be content with only what they need? Will my provision be enough? God says, go out and gather this bread that I'll give you, this manna, this what is it? They didn't even know what it was, so it was called manna. Was was their word for that. And they would gather it in the morning, but only enough for that day. God said, take what you need, but no more. Take what's necessary, but only for that day. Now, for you and me, I mean, <clears throat> does that seem a little extreme to you? This whole no storing up of the food rule? <clears throat> I would, I would really struggle with that. I'm guessing some of you maybe would too. I mean, think about that for a second. Imagine you being you, but being in this Israelite community and, um, and only having enough food for the day. You just came out of slavery, with 400 years of it. And the deal was, you can only take enough food for today. I mean, wouldn't you want to pack away a little extra manna maybe for later? In fact, go you should go home and read the rest of the chapter because some people try to do that and you'll see what happens. My guess is that for most of us in here, In Omaha, Nebraska in the 21st century, we we probably have enough food in our homes to feed our own families, I would say, at least for two to three days, right? We have enough food in our pantries, in our refrigerators. Some of you, maybe, I don't know, have enough food to feed your family for weeks and weeks. Maybe you got the little bomb shelter in the basement, you're a little paranoid about the economy. You could feed your family for a long time because, right, I mean, what if some tragedy hits, food for the day. Even right now, I've got two kids, one on the way. What if a rogue snowstorm came in tonight? It's winter. I want to know that I've got food for tomorrow. And think about them. They maybe thought, okay, God is awesome. I know that. He just brought us through the Red Sea miraculously. That was crazy, insane. Uh, Pharaoh and all his men, they're gone. They were washed away. But what if, I don't know, what if Egypt has allies to the north or to the east? And what if somebody comes and attacks us? And this God's great, but what if? Would you not struggle with this? But I don't think God's trying to be harsh here, and I think you know that. He's not trying to be stingy. What's his point? He wants his people to trust him, and he did it in one of the most difficult areas too, right? Something that we would all struggle with, our most basic human necessity, food. He tested them with food, And again, that would be a challenge for all of us, but especially if we were a former slave nation. Do you trust me, God is asking, to provide for you what you need day in and day out? Do you trust me? Do you trust me for what you're going through? He says to the Israelites, your very sustenance, your livelihood, your future will depend on whether or not I come through for you. Do you trust that I will? See, God was teaching a very important lesson here, one that we need to learn and relearn over and over again. God was educating Israel on contentment, but not just on contentment, but peace, having a peace about it, and not worrying, not being filled with anxiety. He was educating them on having enough, but also on having a peace about having enough. And it all revolved around trusting him. And you go, okay, All right, I got that. What does this have to do with Christmas? So let's go there. Let's go to those two verses that I mentioned in the Christmas story. Again, if you have Bibles, flip over to Luke chapter 2, and this will help us connect some dots a little bit. Do you remember what the angels announced when Jesus first arrived on the scene? In Luke 2, starting at verse 8, an angel of the Lord, one angel, comes and appears to these shepherds. And uh, announces to them this, this great, great news. And you've probably all heard this before. The angel says, don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for who? For all the people that today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. Even to you, shepherds. He is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger But then I love this part because I can imagine this was just one angel, and it's as if, when we get to verse 13, it's as if every other angel in heaven goes, I want in on this action. Like, I want in on this announcement. This is the biggest news ever. This is the best news ever, and let's all go down there together. And so look at this, verse 13. It says, suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, and they almost just blurt out, right? They just burst out, and they praise God and say, glory to God in the highest And on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. And here's where things get interesting. Because in the Greek, the word peace here, the word peace means more than it means for us. That at least a lot of the times, peace, we just think about meaning the absence of war. And we know that peace means more than that, but we typically Think about peace thinking world peace or, again, just the absence of war. But peace here, especially in the Greek, had connotations and referred to a state of inner contentment and assurance. So when the angels hovered over a dark field singing to a cluster of terrified shepherds, they weren't announcing that wars were going to end because Jesus had arrived. They were talking about a true sense of inner contentment and fulfillment and assurance and joy being available to us now because of Jesus, our Savior. So in these two places, we have God taught the Israelites from the very beginning in the book of Exodus, in the desert, on their way to their new land that God was going to bring them into, that there's something better than having more. There's something better than just having more food. And there's something better than having more plans and more parties and more things and more presents and more stuff. It's having peace and contentment, true contentment, through trusting him. And then through the arrival of his son as a baby, he taught the world the exact same lesson again for generations to come, that God cares about our peace. He really does. He wants us to be content. And he knows that it's not found in the presence of more, that it happens when we understand that what we have is enough. But see, there's no other time of the year when we're more susceptible to forget this than at Christmas time. When the ache for more is almost too much to handle and we love being together and we love all our stuff, but it's, we always want more and we have to rewrap our minds around what peace really means. So this morning, here's my main point, but here's the thing. Before I, before I give it to you, this, this isn't new to you, all right? This is, this is a reminder, and it's sort of a new way to say it, but this isn't something that you've never heard before, and in fact, as I've already alluded to, it really applies to something half a week ago, but I think we need to rewrap our minds around this every year at this time and every coming year. So it's this. You ready? Here it is. That the plans of Christmas compete with the peace that Jesus came to offer. The plans of Christmas, they, they compete with the peace Jesus came to offer. And I'm not talking about the plans of the first Christmas, the original Christmas, the story of Jesus' birth. No, no, those, those plans are all about the peace that Jesus came to offer. I'm talking about our plans, our American plans, our 21st century consumeristic plans. They compete. With the peace that Jesus came to offer. And we need to rewrap our minds around this. But, okay. you Alright, that's, that's a nice little phrase you got there, Brad. That's great. But, but now what? I mean, what do, you, what do we do with this? How do we apply it? We stop celebrating Christmas? Are you saying we shouldn't give gifts? Should we just be screwed? Should we kind of throw out all the tradition? Do we start practicing Christmas with the cranks? Say No. I don't think so. But perhaps one application is this. Maybe the first application is we maybe do need to be a little more content with less instead of wanting and seeking more all the time. Because more doesn't really give us much in the end if we're honest with ourselves. It really doesn't. And so maybe we should perhaps take a look at our consumeristic mindset a bit. Listen to this quote from author Ernest Becker. I think it applies so well to our to our consumerism. He writes this, if everyone lives roughly the same lies about the same things, then there's no one to call them lies. They jointly establish their own sanity and call themselves normal. If everyone lives roughly the same lies about the same things, then there's no one there's no one to call them lies. They jointly establish their own sanity and call themselves normal. Have we done that? But I would say even more than that. Here's application number two. Application number two just might be this, that maybe we should take a hard look at Jesus' life and ask this question of Jesus. That we should say, when you were on this earth, Jesus, were you modeling for us how to live like you did? Were you trying to show us how to live differently? And what I mean is that by the grace of God and with the power of the Holy Spirit, can we seek to transform our inner life, the heart, As Jesus so often talked about, and as the Bible so often talked about, can we seek to transform our inner life through the same disciplines that Jesus implemented himself? Now, I'm not talking about, when I say that, you maybe go, oh, here we go. When I say that, I'm not talking about, if you heard Jeff Dart preach last week, I'm not talking about merely religious activities that are devoid of a relationship with Jesus. Jesus. Jeff said so clearly and so wonderfully last Sunday that religious activities without an abiding and a lasting relationship with Jesus Christ, they're burdensome. They become toilsome. They'll lead to burnout. But with a relationship with Jesus, with that relationship, and anyone can begin that relationship at any time through placing their trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Anyone can begin that relationship at any time. But with that relationship These spiritual disciplines and spiritual practices, they can be life-changing and life-transforming. So I want to look at some of these real quickly, these practices that Jesus practiced. But again, don't have in your mind, I don't want you to get legalistic or think that here's a whole other list of stuff. For Jesus, these are part of his natural rhythms. They were actual habits for him. We have some of these things. You know, like, I tend to find about three times a day I eat, I just, I just eat, I don't know, about three times a day, isn't that funny? Almost every morning, I take a shower. Not, like, I wouldn't have to, but we practice hygiene. We have these natural habits. Some of you in here, your workout regimen, it's not a chore anymore, it's a discipline, it's just part of who you are because you've trained yourself to do that. Let's look at some of these real quick. I wanna look at a few that are just right here, at the beginning of Luke, still in chapter two these things that Jesus practiced. So look with me at, at Luke 2, verse 46. This is really interesting. This is a funny. I was just walking through this being at the beginning of Luke. And Jesus is at the temple. He gets kind of lost. He gets separated from his parents. And uh, in verse 46, he's 12 years old. He's a middle school student. He's in sixth or seventh grade. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Jesus was practicing the discipline of fellowship, and you go, whoa, 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 he wasn't practicing a spiritual discipline there. He was a 12-year-old boy, and I would go, well, maybe, but maybe he was. I mean, he tended to practice this this discipline pretty often later on with his disciples. He wanted to be around people like this. this. These were Jewish teachers. He's in the temple, but he was listening to them and asking them questions. What was Jesus doing? He was, it was just a small group. Jesus went to a small group at the temple. He just left his parents and did it. You go, eh. okay, let's look at some more. Let's keep, flip over to chapter 4. Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Uh, verses one and two. Jesus is being tempted here in the, in the desert. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan. He was led by the Spirit into the desert where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during these, the, those days. And at the end, he was hungry. Probably an understatement there a little bit, huh? But he didn't eat. He practiced what? The discipline of fasting. He fasted. Am I saying that you need to fast for 40 days? No, I'm not saying that. But Jesus, what is fasting? He, he intentionally went without food to be more in tune with his relationship with the Father. He goes, there's bread that, that you don't know about, disciples. There's bread that I have that I'm feeding on my relationship with the Father. And he went without food. You go, Whoa, whoa, whoa. He was being tempted by the devil. And I go, yeah, but he didn't cave in either, did he? Hmm. And still in that chapter, how does Jesus also attack Satan? Verses 4, 8, and 12, Jesus practiced the discipline of scripture memorization. Or the classic spiritual discipline this would fall under is just Study. Study. He was stood being tempted by Satan by quoting Scripture. And he doesn't quote long, like, paragraphs or chapters of Scripture. No, they're like little sentences. And so you go, oh, yeah, yeah, I know I'm supposed to memorize Scripture. Yeah, but don't just do it just to do it. But what's your biggest temptation? What are your sin struggles? You struggle with anger, with lust? Man, there's a great great verse somewhere in Scripture that you can recite to yourself, that you can memorize to help fight that, to help combat it. That's what Jesus was doing here. Look with me at verse 16. Same chapter, Luke chapter 4, verse 16. It says, He, being Jesus, went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. Hmm. Jesus practiced the discipline of corporate worship. I'm sure he made it a priority. He's Jesus after all, but I'm sure he made that a priority. He practiced the discipline of corporate worship. Maybe that's something you need to recommit to in 2014. Or finally, Luke 4, verse 42, just the first sentence there. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. Jesus practiced the discipline of solitude and silence. Solitude, being alone, finding a place alone in silence with no noise around. We never experience that anymore. The hum of the appliances, I mean, even in our own houses. Solitude and silence, most likely accompanied by prayer. If you flip over one, uh, one chapter, Luke 5, verse 16, it says Jesus often withdrew to lonely places, and he prayed, he prayed. So typically prayer goes along with solitude and silence. There's seven disciplines right here that Jesus regularly practiced, and I'm only four chapters into the book of Luke. Some of us need to implement a training plan. It's a great application of this, that in partnership with God through the Holy Spirit, We work on things like our anger and our lust, as I've already mentioned, our flippant words, our loving those who curse us. Interestingly, everything that Jesus talked about in Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. Like maybe he knew we were going to struggle with this stuff. The Apostle Paul also speaks using this language really often in the New Testament. And uh, one of my favorite verses lately is in 1 Timothy 4:7. Paul is writing a letter to his protégé Timothy, and he actually he says this. He writes, "Train yourself to be godly." Train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things. And some of us go, "Whoa, what? Like I didn't even think that was possible." Which is funny because we maybe ironically we we wake up and we think, "When I become a Christian, I just thought I'd wake up one morning and be like a saint and I wouldn't struggle with that anymore." Paul actually would say, train yourself to be godly. We need to train ourselves to have the peace of Christ within us. What would that look like? You go, train? You mean like, uh, you mean like I'm training for the, the Omaha Marathon or the Lincoln Marathon? Or like I train for a weight training program or like I train for other things? Yeah. Yeah, what would that look like if you developed a training program much like a workout program, but in the spiritual disciplines? Why do we need to do this, Brad? Why why do we need to do this? Well, for starters, because Christians tend to look a lot like the rest of the world. And especially this time of year. And Christmas, and frankly, Christianity in general, is a call for Jesus followers to look different. I mean, to actually look different. You've seen this in people. When you expect them to, like, blow up or go off, you've seen this in people. To look different. A call toward distinctiveness. When the story that we're telling with our lives is different from the story the culture tells, we need to to live to a different tune. We need to be driven by different desires, that our lives should reflect a different motivation that comes from a different heart, a gospel-changed heart. And you go, how do I get that kind of heart? Well, remember, again, don't forget, it always starts with understanding that Jesus Christ died in my place for my sin. That I only have a different heart when I run to Jesus and say, Jesus is my substitute. He died for me. I always tell my kids, Jesus died for us so that we don't have to die. That there was one that came, that God made Adam and Eve originally. He made a creation and humanity good and perfect. But he also gave them the will to choose. And he needed to do that because he couldn't force love on them. They weren't robots. But so Adam and Eve, eventually they rebelled and they, they went away from God. And sin infected all of humanity. And so we've all sinned, and God, he's absolutely loving, but he's also just, and he's holy, and he couldn't just let those sins go unpunished. Somebody had to pay the price for that. And man, I tell you, I'd love to pay the price for somebody else's sins, but as Steve said this last week at the Christmas services, I can't do that because I have my own junk, right? I have my own sin, and so, man, I need a savior. I need someone who is perfect. I need the spotless lamb the pure, the the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so it's that glorious exchange that if Jesus is my substitute, it means that all of my sin went on him when he paid the price for it on the cross and he died and was buried, and all of his righteousness comes to me. And so we are positionally before God, We we have his righteousness. Positionally, we are pure, we are clean, we are righteous. But practically, we also need to, by faith, trust Jesus to by the grace of God, transform us practically. And so I ask this question, what classic spiritual discipline can you begin to implement through the grace that God has given you, through the grace that God has given all of us? How would your life look different if you took on a plan to cultivate the inner character of Christ? Starting from the heart, from the inside out. I'm not just talking about external behaviors here. It starts With the heart, it must, otherwise you turn into a Pharisee. What if you developed a plan with the guidance of God through the Holy Spirit to change your heart? What would peace look like for you if you trained yourself in the peace of Christ? And on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. Because our plans around Christmas and our plans around the holidays and all of our busyness, they compete. But the peace that Jesus came to offer us, they compete. And so my prayer for us as we head into a new year is for changed hearts that flow out into changed lives. That we would actually go to God and we we need to pray to God and say, God, keep my heart from being devoted to all of these other things and all of these other plans and all of this other stuff that won't satisfy me in the end anyway, but will just let me down. And God, they're good things and they're fine, but God, help me not worship them. Give me the only thing, the only one that I really need. And that's you, Jesus, because in the end, I do not just need the giver. I, just, I don't just need peace. I need the giver of true peace. I need Jesus. I don't just need contentment and warm feelings. No, I need the peace that only Jesus can bring. And, and we say, Jesus, with you as my teacher and my Lord, help me. Help me train myself to be godly. And I think if we did that and making such a statement, we would be declaring a radical trust in God that each day, each day what he gives us is enough. It's enough for that day. Let's pray together. Father, we, uh, we live in a culture and a society that is, God, we've been so blessed and we're so good, but God, we're so driven by consumerism and stuff. God, it's not bad. It's not all bad, but God, it can consume us. And God, frankly, it competes with the true message of the first Christmas. And we need to be reminded of that. We need to rewrap our minds around that. Lord, may we not forget the peace that you came to offer us, the true peace. God, may, not, may we not be distracted by stuff that never really fulfills anyway. And deep down, we know it. God, may we run to you the giver of true peace. And God, may we learn by the grace, by your Holy Spirit working in us, our Holy Spirit-empowered will, may may you help train us to train ourselves for godliness, whatever that looks like. May we develop a plan on being less angry, on being more content, on lusting less, on watching our words. God, whatever it is, train us for godliness. But to do so, God, we need you, and we need the peace that you bring. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.